The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 2, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kershnovskaya, and a special guest host, Dr. Francis Yu. On tonight's episode, we'll discuss teaching when emotions run high with Dr. Rachel Hathaway and Sarah Bailey. Francis, can you give us a one-liner to our audience so they can get to know you? Um, sure. I'm a 38-year-old female Canadian medical educator. I love all things infectious disease, running, and traveling. We are so excited to have you on the show, Francis. And just a reminder for the audience, at Curbsiders Teach, we are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And we have a fantastic conversation tonight with our guests, Dr. Rachel Hathaway and Sarah Bailey. We discuss teaching strategies from when emotions run high in the teaching classroom or the clinical learning environment. We cover the pyramid of behaviors, emotions, differential diagnosis for what might be going on for learners. We also touch on ways to prepare ahead of teaching to be ready for those situations, what to do in the moment, and ways to debrief with your critical friends group and the learners after the fact. And I'd love to take a moment to um, introduce our two guests today as well, Dr. Rachel Hathaway, an academic internal medicine hospitalist at Cambridge Health Alliance and instructor at Harvard Medical School. She's a dear friend and a colleague, consummate educator, and holds multiple leadership roles teaching Harvard Medical students and internal medicine residents, including being the director of the Harvard Medical School sub-internship program at CHA and the internal medicine residency director of resident evaluation. Our second guest today is Sarah Bailey, who interestingly also went to high school with Dr. Hathaway. She's the program director at the Astra Center for Innovative Education, an organization committed to building strong and vibrant relationships across all levels of the school community. Her primary focus is on the creation of warm and supportive adult culture in schools. And after receiving her teaching degree from Boston College, she taught at the Francis Parker Charter Essential School in Massachusetts for six years, teaching arts and humanities. So we're in for a real treat with these two guests. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So without further ado, let's, let's get, get to, to it. it. Yay. <laughs> I like it. Well, Rachel and Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Are you okay if we use your first names? Definitely. Absolutely. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. We're, we're so glad to have you on the show. And we just like to start with some rapid fire questions to get to know you a little bit better. Um, I'll start with you, Rachel. Could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Sure. I'm a 36-year-old internal medicine hospitalist, medical educator, and clinical reasoning enthusiast who likes to dabble in stained glass. And I'm expecting my first kid in the next couple of weeks with my husband. Wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. And how about you, Sarah? 
Uh, I'm also 36 years old. Fun fact, Rachel and I share uh, the same birthday. What? Uh, what? And yeah, it's great. It's great. And I am a white queer mom of two young boys who run around a lot and keep me on my toes. I am a very enthusiastic dancer. I love a good margarita. And I am a an aspiring half marathoner. Not there yet, but aspiring. Awesome. Rachel, is this your first baby? It is. Yeah. Wish me luck. Wonderful. <laughs> and how old are you, Sarah? Uh, mine are two and a half and almost five. So starting wow. kindergarten in three weeks. Exciting. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you could both make the time to join us. I agree. And I can't wait to at some point see some enthusiastic dancing. I feel like there'd be a lot of, there's a lot of, there's an audience for that too. I feel like. Oh, yeah. I lots of arm it. movement. Yeah. yeah she, she's an excellent dancer. Very fun to dance with Sarah. <laughs> there must be some sort of like education through dance kind of uh, component. Maybe we can see if we can fuse that into our podcast. I love it. I'm here for it. <laughs> well, maybe Sarah, Rachel, do y'all mind sharing a book, movie, or show or album that you've listened to recently or not so recently and really enjoyed? And maybe Sarah, we'll start with you. Yeah. So I read a lot of YA fiction as a, as a former teacher. And the book that I've just finished reading that was recommended by a former colleague was The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful story, but I think it also talks a lot about how we care for the young people in our lives um, and then how we also then care for ourselves and how we get to know ourselves. So I think it was a really meaningful and important read. Oh, I love that. And Rachel, what about you? Well, I've actually been having the nostalgic experience of rereading or actually re-listening to the Harry Potter series. I'm currently in book seven. Um, and this was inspired after visiting Hogwarts at Universal Studios after the National Estrib Conference in Orlando this past spring. So that's been a that's been fun. Very fun. We my partner and I read them to our son but we'd sort of like switch off. So I read about half of them, but like I read like chapter six and then chapter nine and be like, I think I know <laughs> where this went. So Francis, do you want to ask the next one? Oh, sure. Thanks. Other rapid fire question. What is your favorite failure and what did you learn? Rachel, do you want to go first? Sure. For me, my favorite failure was probably the teaching session that went totally upside down and actually led to the inspiration for this podcast today, our workshop at SGM, and hopefully a publication coming up soon. What about you, Sarah? Yeah, so uh, Rachel and and I went to high school together. We actually met in our eighth grade year in in English class. So Rachel will probably remember uh, that there was a summer assignment before our world history class in ninth grade, and it was a DBQ, which... I love document-based questions. They're great. But I got it back in the mail and I got a 65 and I sobbed, like uncontrollably sobbed. I'd never seen a grade like that before and it really rattled me. And because I am a little bit of a perfectionist and I am also anxious, I immediately went to, all right, I'm going to fail the quarter. I'm going to fail the year. I'm not cut out for high school. And right, so there's a message there, I think, around perspective taking for sure. But for me now, in a long range setting, I think it's really important to consider as a teacher that you are never leaving your students to feel like that. 
right? And to feel that vulnerable and to not come back and check in um, and do some of that really critical work so that when something does happen and it might be unexpected, you're not just leaving students to feel badly because it really, it, it affected my whole year. Well, we're so happy, Sarah, that you continued on with high school to be know, where right? you are today. <laughs> I even went to college. <laughs> I also had an intense throwback when you said DBQ because I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't thought about those, nor do I want to ever again. <laughs> There's a little PTSD with that, isn't there? I, that's what I mean. I was like, <gasps> I started sweating a little bit. I also love that you called it a, like, you know, your perfectionist tendencies are, one of our former guests, guests says that she's a recovering perfectionist, Chantal Young, Dr. Chantal Young. And I just, I, I can, I just feel seen in everything you said because it brought back so many memories. <laughs> Do you have some favorite advice or feedback that you've received in your career or that you like to share with uh, learners? And uh, Sarah, we can start with you. So I haven't gotten this in my career necessarily. I also listened to Glennon Doyle's podcast. And while her advice was not specific to me, it resonated to a high degree with me. Um, and she said at one point, and I'll paraphrase, right, that our, we're not supposed to be ensuring other people's happiness. That's not what we're doing. And so, you know, in a really concrete example, I'm not supposed to make sure that my kids are happy and that they get everything that they want. I am supposed to help them have a human experience. And so I found that really freeing, right, that I don't need to worry that everyone is feeling good, but rather that whatever anyone is feeling, the best thing to do is actually just to sit beside them and to witness it and be there. Um, and that, I think, has allowed me to handle a lot of situations really differently, just feeling like, yep, I actually, I'm not in charge of that. And what I need to do right now is just be with you. That's great. I love that. Yeah. Rachel? I think for me, this is more of a professional uh professional advice I've received in the past was to do something in addition to clinical medicine. And that for me was teaching for sure. I've found med ed to be a really important pathway for me to refresh my perspective, to keep me humble, and really give me ongoing opportunities for growing and learning. And I've just found the the community of folks doing medical education to be really wonderful and, and welcoming. So that was probably the best professional advice I've gotten. I love it. Everyone should get into bed, Ed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. Great. Well, let's jump into picks of the week. Um, I'll pass today, but Yara, do you want to start off with yours? I do. I don't know if we're allowed to have like intra picks of the week or things that haven't been completed, but I have been, um, I was on a plane uh, reading this book called Please Don't Sit on My Bed with Your Outside Clothes by Phoebe Robinson, um, success of the Two Dope Queens podcast and TV series. And I was laughing out loud. Like I was the person where the lights are off. I was the only one with the light on and I was laughing so hard. I definitely woke somebody up because I heard them like kind of growl at me. But literally <laughs> it was one of the funniest books I had read and just so honest and really um, kind of reflective and, and, uh, and lots of advice and very honest. And I have literally said the words, please don't sit on my bed with your outside clothes. So I felt, again, Sarah, just like you made me feel very seen. And um, if anybody is looking for just a hilarious, but also kind of um, advice, memoir, essays collection, uh, I would really suggest Phoebe Robinson's book. I'm not done yet, but I loved it so much. I decided to make it my partially completed pick of the week. 
Cool. You'll have to tell us which part is your favorite once you're done. I, I, there's so many, Frances. I can't even begin to start. Like she talk, she writes in a way that feels very similar to how I talk. So I'm like, am I talking to a friend right now or reading? A, it's just, it's so great. Frances, I don't know if you have a pick of the week you want to share. Oh, I do. Um, my pick of the week is a book called Medical London. I was recently in London with my partner who's a huge like medical history, infectious disease nerd, also a physician. So yes, very nerdy. And we went around and actually went to some of the places mentioned in this Medical London book like historical places where like penicillin was founded or like the Wellcome Trust has a great exhibit of all these different historical things, understanding, you know, where kind of our medical history comes from. And I find that really interesting, especially in teaching learners about physical exam, understanding like what did we used to do for a physical exam and how we've come so far. So a very nerdy pick of the week, but it's a really fun book, especially if you're in London to kind of do the little tour. I love that. I feel like finding where you've, where like the roots of things, whether it's like Italy, London, kind of where else, you know, ancient societies have done things is always really fun. So that's so cool. We would like to acknowledge our collaborators who who built the workshop version of this topic, which was presented at this year's National SGIM Conference. Dr. Ariel Majidi at Massachusetts at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School, Dr. Priyank Jain at Cambridge Health Alliance and Harvard Medical School, and Dr. Mike McShane at Penn State College of Medicine. All right. Now that we've had the introductions, let's get started with a case from Cashlack Memorial. You are invited to facilitate a small group session for third-year medical students. The prior session ran over, and the students were late in returning to the room to start your session. You know some of these students from their rotations on the wards, and one student with whom you've worked closely for a week, you've had significant performance issues. You provided coaching during the week as well as feedback at the end of the week, but the student was very defensive and not receptive to the feedback that was given and frequently externalized blame. So at the start of this teaching session, the group was encouraged to participate and ask questions. This particular student repeatedly raised their hand to give their opinion they expressed frustration and also was a little tangential in peripheral-related topics that seemed to relate more to their recent rotation and frustrations they had on the wards. You, as a teacher and facilitator, felt that the student was trying to attack you based on prior experiences. You felt derailed during the session, and you felt like you weren't able to accomplish many or any of your learning objectives. Other students were also frustrated by these frequent interruptions. Thanks, Francis. I feel like this is like a chaos of emotions. And uh, I also feel like this is very relatable. And I wonder, Rachel and Sarah, if y'all can tell us kind of when you hear this um, emotional roller coaster that's happening, kind of what goes through your mind uh, when you're hearing it? Yeah, Era, it's such a tough case. Um, and I think we've all we've all been in situations similar to this. It's important just to acknowledge up front that there can be so much about teaching that elicits emotional responses, both in our students and in ourselves. Um, and this case does a really nice job highlighting that tension. Actually, there was a similar case to this that inspired uh, me and my colleagues to develop uh, this SGIM workshop on how to address tense emotions in the classroom, because it was something that when we debriefed the session, we all felt we could relate to and wondered if there was a way we could help others to move through situations like this. Yeah, and this happens all the time in the K-12 classroom. There are so many moments where we are grappling with 
a response that we just didn't think was going to come up. So I think it's really helpful to break this down into three kind of distinct phases to help us think about it. And that would be before something is happening, when you're lesson planning, right? Thinking about something proactively, when you are reacting in the moment <laughs> to whatever challenge has just arisen, and then, you know, post-lesson, what you're going to do moving forward. And I think, I, I, you know, there's more to cover here. So I want to pause there and say, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Um, but, you know, I think that we also really need to consider who our students are, what are the reactions they're having, and what are the emotions that are underneath those reactions. And Sarah, I love how you kind of bring up this framework of before, during, after. I know during um, today's conversation, we're going to talk more about kind of strategies to handle the in-moment kind of frustrations that happen and how to achieve those learning objectives. But what are strategies that either one of you could think of in terms of planning for a session beforehand that you utilize? Yeah, I think the planning piece of it is so important because it's what gives us a little bit of liberty and grace to be able to move through uncomfortable situations. We're never going to be able to anticipate every reaction that could happen that's impossible to do and impossible to ask even the most experienced educator to try to think through. So really what we have to do is think about, okay, how can I be really mindful of my timing? How can I be really mindful of what my students could be bringing into the room at any particular point? And how can I kind of sow the seeds to allow for everyone to have that kind of human experience? I think we've all had moments where things haven't gone to plan and we've had reactions that we haven't loved or have thought, oh, wow, I, I did okay there, right? That was, that was okay today. Um, and so you build more strategies, and I know we'll get to more of them later, but you know, one that I love is just having a little bit of flex time in your lesson plan and just knowing, right, I'm going to set aside five minutes, and if something comes up and I need to use something in the moment to kind of help you know, dispel this tension, I have the time I need to do it. And the worst thing that happens is you get to the end of your work and you have five minutes right? Um, and no one is upset with five minutes at the end of a session. I think the tricky thing here is there are some topics that you're teaching where you might antis easily anticipate that there could be a, a huge emotional response from uh, your students. But so often you're teaching a session and you're caught completely off guard. And so to Sarah's point, it's, it's useful to have sort of a toolbox of strategies that you can kind of anticipate and then also like react to in real time. I was going to say, I kind of want to name what I'm hearing, which is like, there's the situational awareness that we always like want to have, like check your pulse before you start, a, you know, leading a code. But also there's like the pre-situational awareness, which kind of I hear you saying, Sarah and Rachel, about like building in room and being mindful that things may not go as planned and kind of being able to be flexible. And sometimes that comes by literally building in flex time, but also just kind of the awareness, the pre-situational awareness that something may happen depending on what's going on in the room. And if you're actually in the situation, like in this case, how do you start to figure out what your learner might be feeling or thinking? 
Yeah. So I, I think that when something happens and we get that reaction, we get that behavior, it really often makes the teacher have an emotional response of our own um, and it can really catch us off guard. And that's really tricky, right? But that reaction is often just kind of the tip of the iceberg for whatever is happening for that student in that moment. There, there are other things at play and you don't know what they are, right? Most of the time as a teacher. And there's a range of behaviors that you can see that can lead to this. So, you know, we're talking about subtle facial expressions that you might really be cueing into from specific people. You might be noticing, you know, the kind of culture of distraction. So people checking their phones or trying to have a quiet side conversation. Um, You might see someone making inappropriate comments. You might see someone crying. You could have someone walk out. And I think what's hard is that, again, you don't know what's behind that. I think sometimes we just jump right to a judgment, we make an assumption, and those never serve us well. So we really have to think about, okay, here's my reaction, right? Here's whatever I'm seeing. What's the emotion that's underlying that? And then what has actually prompted that? And not actually just jumping from, this student is crying, something awful must have happened, right? I am a nervous laugher, and that has gotten me into trouble on more than one occasion, but I wouldn't want someone to, you know, kind of come at me thinking that I was, you know, being terribly disrespectful or, or doing something without first kind of seeking to understand. So I think that there's a, a big piece here about not jumping the gun on those and and making those assumptions and really trying to have some conversations and be reflective and thoughtful. I love this. I I think it brings to mind to me a lot of communications training I've had around working with patients. And we don't always think about using that directly with working with learners as well, but it's exactly the same things. If you're in that tense situation with a patient, you get that counter-transference. How do you not escalate? How do you kind of step back and sort of see that there's a bigger picture behind it? So I, I love that. And I think, Sarah, also you're highlighting, you know, the really challenging multifaceted job that we have as teachers, not just teaching the information, delivering the information in a specific way, but also being cognizant of all of the emotional state of all of our learners. Is there a specific framework or kind of like pearl or tool that you would kind of recommend to our listeners and kind of approaching what sounds like a very complex like teaching environment. I'll jump in here. Um, I'll, we actually developed a framework for how to think about what might be happening with our learners' emotional states in the classroom. So if you were to think about a pyramid, at the top of this pyramid are the various reactions and behaviors, um, such as some of the examples that Sarah mentioned that we observe from our students. And if we delve deeper, the next level of the pyramid is, is there a specific emotional state that drives that observable reaction or behavior? And then underlying all of that is the base of the pyramid. And that's sort of our differential diagnosis for their emotional state. And we used differential diagnosis here just as a mirror to what happens in clinical medicine to really prompt us to make sure that we're thinking broadly and humbly about the various root causes of our learners' emotions and reactions. Um, But I'll just caution that we we want to be careful here in using this term to not imply that our learners have specific medical disorders. So if we were to go back to the case, the student in this case was demonstrating anger, was frequently interrupting, 
And while we may think that this is stemming from that tough past personal experience working with that with that student, we just have to take a pause here and remind ourselves that the differential diagnosis for what's going on for this student is still broad. They could have just come from the wards and had a tough case that they saw. They could be coming from a really emotionally charged teaching session that was right before our session, and we just don't know what happened uh, in that session. Or they may have gone through something personal. Maybe they just had a breakup or you know, their apartment's flooding. There's, there are just so many possibilities. And so just important for us to take our own pause and to consider, as Sarah said, not to make any assumptions and consider that there could be a lot of other things happening in the background. Wow, this is super helpful. And I always love a good pyramid structure. So I really appreciate kind of y'all breaking this down. And especially, Rachel, you applying it to the case that um, Francis introduced us to. I wonder kind of, you know, thinking through an educational session, um, let's say somebody is kind of in the moment in a teaching experience. I wonder, could both of you kind of let us know how you would apply this framework during an an actual educational session? Because we can imagine a situation where someone's emotional or affective state uh, can change the entire tone of the conversation so or the planned teaching session. So how does one maybe apply this kind of in the moment, perhaps? And maybe, Sarah, start with you. Sure. Yeah. So I'm even thinking about a specific experience that I had with a middle schooler um, who did something very unexpected during one of my lessons uh, teaching English. And I think really what it what it starts to be is first the observation, right? Just like, okay, what's happening? Has this been happening for a little bit? Right? It's like that, it's that kind of gut check of am I seeing what I'm seeing? right? Or am I making something bigger or minimizing something, right? So I think there's there's first just that very observation of what the behavior is and, and what's going on. And then, you know, I think, and I'll talk a little bit more about the power of relationships a little bit later, but I think this is where relationships are so handy because when we get to know our learners, we can have a sense of what they might be feeling with a certain reaction or know if something like this has happened before. So, you know, I might start to think about whether I know of anything from this learner that might kind of tip my thinking um, about if this, if something really bad has happened um, or if there's something really positive that they're experiencing and they're just having trouble focusing or containing themselves in that. And I think that's what really leads us into that differential diagnosis, right? And thinking about, okay, so what am I seeing and how can I kind of move through that? But that's also really challenging because you're still teaching, right? So you're not stopped and pondering like what's happening for this kid or or this adult, right? Um, sorry, my, my middle school days come back to me when I talk about kids. But, you know, it's it's really very tricky to be doing that internal work and then still be continuing on with whatever whatever the lesson is. So it's quick. It's not tidy, but I think it's trying to figure out, am I seeing what I'm seeing? And then, okay, what do I know that can help me make sense of what's happening? And I'll just add that that application of this framework in real time is super tricky. 
And one strategy that can be really helpful for you as an educator is just to take a mindful breath to sort of ground yourself and to be aware of your own internal emotional state as a teacher. I learned this from really well from Sarah, actually, um, that you really can't regulate a dysregulated person without regulating yourself first. And so taking a breath is one really great, brief, real-time way to regulate yourself. And it really just engages our parasympathetic nervous system and um, kind of grounds us and gives us can give us a moment to collect ourselves to and hopefully also to um, sort of collect our thoughts about what to do next. And I'll add that absolutely, it's really tricky in the moment and it gets easier over time. And Rachel, because I know that this is based on a real case, maybe you can share with our listeners as well, like how you actually dealt with it in the moment. Yeah, in the moment, I have to say, I don't know if I handled it with as much grace as I would aspire to. I think I uh, found myself reeling a little bit in in the case that I had. Um, I do remember pausing and uh, trying to sort of collect collect myself. And I also remember pivoting in my lesson plan to ask general questions of the group to give myself sort of like a second to collect myself um, and to get responses from other people. Um, So I found I found ways to sort of create space in the lesson plan so I could try to gather myself and and internally strategize about where to go next. Sounds like a good time for the pair share moments. Um, We we talk about on some of our other episodes. Um, Sarah, I'm curious if it sounds like you come from a background of working with middle school and high school. Have you thought about or kind of researched how this is different with adult learners? I mean, I could imagine there's a lot of similarities between how, you know, adults experience and express emotion as well as those younger groups. But do you do you think there are significant differences or things that might be important to highlight for the audience? So I will start off by saying that I think something that's really been important for me in my work has been first and foremost acknowledging that kids are just people and they aren't like some, I I think some people really treat kids as like the separate entity, right? Or like, well, they don't know a lot or we have to teach them everything. And I do not ascribe to that kind of thinking, right? Kids are just young people. And so we learn through our socialization, like how to try to keep things in and how to try to keep our emotions in more of a box, right? So I think a lot of that makes me think that when you are working with adult learners and they're having a big unexpected reaction, like there's really a lot to dig into there. And it might not always be your job as their teacher to do all of that digging, but you can't ignore those kinds of things because we have learned over many years to just try to kind of keep our heads down and keep going. Um, And so when something really gets stirred up, we have to acknowledge that and we have to move through it, right? In some ways, working with younger kids can be a little bit easier because they will tell you how they feel. And if they cannot tell you, they will show you how they feel. And they're a little bit more willing to do that usually because they don't always understand, I think, some of the ramifications or some of the kind of social pressure of acting in a particular way in a certain kind of space. There's also something about that brutal honesty that only children or young adults can kind of really give you that you're like, wow, 
that was just put in the ether and said out loud and that we have to work with. But I think sometimes like unless someone does name it or just call it out, you don't even know that it's in the learning environment. Yeah. And that's really tricky because how do you move forward? How do you navigate that if there's something that you're not aware of, right? Teaching is a is a really tricky job, as we've said, and trying to be aware of everything that's happening in a room is uh, it's just a huge task. That is, um, I think those are great helpful tips. And maybe we'll jump into a second case so we can dive into this even a little bit deeper. Um, and Sarah and Rachel, we changed the case just a little bit, just as a warning, but I'm sure everything will apply the same way. Um, so you're a preceptor in continuity clinic, and you've had some challenging interactions with a resident. The staff have reported back to you that the resident is sometimes demanding of them. He's precepting a patient with you, and you make some, some suggestions about how to change his management plan around diabetes. Um, similar to what has happened sometimes on other times when you're precepting, he becomes a little defensive and refuses to take your advice. You try to share some feedback with the resident after the session, but he doesn't seem responsive. Later in a small group session with the residents, he gets off topic and is spending a lot of time during the session complaining about small issues in clinic. And it seems like some of the other interns are getting a little discouraged about the learning environment in clinic, and you're just worried about sort of the negative influence that he's kind of bringing to the group and also the fact that he's not really as engaged in his learning as you would hope. So, you know, I think these are not uncommon situations in any learning environment. How would you start to think about what's happening in this case and potentially share some strategies that you would use to engage the learner? So this is not uncommon uh, to run into situations like this um, uh, in the clinical setting. And sorry, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, sorry. We should have warned you ahead of time that we... <laughs> no, no, no. I just want to make sure that I, I fold everything in. Um, so it can be really challenging to precept a, a trainee or a student who is just doesn't seem receptive to your questions, to your advice, and also appears to be influencing uh, their colleagues in, in a teaching session. So I think in terms of some options of what you can do, in addition to sort of just internally taking a pause and trying to gather yourself when something like this is happening... We have a, we've put together a couple of strategies that we think could be useful in sort of helping to um, interrupt the emotional dynamic that's happening, um, and we, we call them circuit breakers. So um, one of our sort of go-to circuit breakers that we like to use is whenever uh, it feels like a, a learner is sort of inattentive or distracted, such as in this case, you can invite learners you can first just actually name what seems to be happening that the that the group seems to be distracted or that or that there's a lot of side commentary happening. You can also invite learners to to physically stand up and move around the room or even take a 5-minute break with um, some time you might have flexed into the session. I know Sarah talked a little bit about building in flex time earlier. Or you could use as Molly pointed out before, a uh, pair share or breakout group activity in the moment to help sort of contain um, what's happening and sort of reduce the sort of blast radius uh, of a learner's emotional output or to help engage learners who seem disconnected. Um, we also, another strategy could be to use a solo writing activity for learners, um, which could relieve some of the pressure in the moment on the individual level for each learner without then uh, affecting anyone else in the group. So this, those are just some thoughts about what to do sort of in real time when a situation like this occurs. 
Yeah. And I think it's also important to note, you know, as you were just doing, Rachel, that there are other folks in the room who are also experiencing this. And while there might be a particular interaction happening between the teacher and the learner, when it's observed by a lot of folks, that changes the dynamic that can amp things up, right? So so often turning to um, something that allows everyone to take that pause, like writing, is really a powerful way to move through it. You know, and then to get back to a point that I made earlier that, you know, we have different strategies that we use at different times. And so before something happens, you can really be thinking through your lesson plan. And lesson planning is an area, you know, beloved by many teachers, hated by some. And uh, I think it's just such a great way to really do that thinking of, okay, so who do I have in front of me, right? Who are my learners? And where can I anticipate they're going to have needs? So having flex time is great, right, for those things that come up like we talked about earlier. Um, But, you know, you can also do something as simple as a kind of trigger warning for sensitive material um, that you think could potentially uh, lead to a reaction. You can also have an agenda that's accessible to all of your learners and preview it before you start teaching. And that can be both content and that you know, can also include the way in which you're going to do some of the learning, right? So some students might feel like, ooh, if I have to talk about this in front of a whole group, that's going to be too risky for me. But if I know it's writing or if I know it's going to be, you know, paired with someone else, that actually makes me feel much more comfortable. Sometimes even giving some of those options as you can in a lesson is a way to help create that psychological and emotional safety that's so necessary in learning. And then there's after a lesson, which, man, like that is so important, this ability to be really reflective and thoughtful about how you how you move from something that's happened. So I know, Rachel, in this specific case, you went and you talked to a couple of your colleagues, and that actually prompted a lot of the work that has now led us to this point, was that conversation that you had. And debriefing is so important. So one practice that we use in education is called, it's having a a critical friends group. And I used these often, I participated in them often as a teacher. Um, And really what it is, is a really structured conversation uh, with a facilitator who kind of keeps you to that structure to help someone get what they need in order to take their next steps. So what we what we like to say is that, you know, it's a teacher bringing their real work, whatever it is that they're thinking about on their drive home, and then saying, okay, maybe I need strategies. Maybe I need some solutions. Maybe I just need people to ask me a lot of probing questions about what happened to expand my own thinking. But those kinds of debriefing tools are really helpful. And I'll say that the National School Reform Faculty has a ton of protocols available online. Um, they're they're just really interesting and, and they can help move you in important ways. Yeah, I'll just share that after the challenging session that inspired uh, our workshop and, and this, uh, this session today, I was in the middle of awards day. So it was a busy day on service, you know, having to run back and see a sick patient and, you know, didn't have a lot of time to reflect sort of in real time. But then the next day had a little bit of downtime with um, some of my colleagues who were part of this this collaborative. And 
just realized how important it was for me to process what had happened and to think through, okay, so all of this happened, but how does this reflect on me as a teacher, as my future teaching sessions and that kind of thing? And then I also reflected, did this sort of asynchronously with Sarah, uh, who's a, a trusted friend and um, has a lot of great wisdom around um, teaching, teaching practices. And um, so I had my own sort of informal, somewhat asynchronous, uh, not real-time uh, critical friends group that was just really powerful um, to debrief the session and to feel kind of like supported and less alone in, in, my, in my teaching practice and to feel that I could go back and teach the session again later and feel like I sort of had some, some tools to hopefully uh, respond a little more gracefully and then also to how to specifically... Um, interact with this the the learner from um, from that case. Can I just say that I love the idea of a critical friends group? I feel like Ariana Grande, where it's like I see it, I like it, I want it because <laughs> it's just such a cool idea, and just to have kind of that network available to you. Um, I wonder just to kind of hit on that relational component that is there that there's this kind of support network, this maybe comforting pillow of critical friends. I wonder if y'all can touch a little bit about on the kind of relational aspect in the room. I know, Sarah, you mentioned this uh, earlier, but kind of, you know, maybe it's part of the before session piece. Maybe it's the intra session piece. And maybe it's part of the debriefing where, you know, we have this critical friends group, but we also have those established relationships with the learners. Um, and I wonder if y'all could both talk about kind of how that relational aspect plays a role uh, when maybe emotions run high. Yeah, I think relationships are absolutely critical in education. And I know that depending on the institution that you're in or kind of where you intersect the teaching world, it can be really challenging to try to figure out some of that relationship work. Um, and I'll actually, I'll throw a call back and I can't remember the name of your guest, but on your first episode, when you were talking about feedback, um, the doctor that you spoke with, will you please remind me his name? Thank you. Okay. So he did such a beautiful job modeling how to even like start to build a relationship, right? Just asking a few questions about what your goals are um, in a session or, or how he can help foster that kind of feedback conversation and that dialogue. And I think that when you are able to, you know, in a longitudinal course, set aside some time in one session or a little bit over you know, several sessions to be able to do some one-on-one -on -one check ins, you're gonna have a much higher yield, right? I think people do better when they feel seen and heard and valued. And that's the power of relationships, right? Knowing that if something happens, or more often than not, when something happens, this person, this teacher that I'm working with, isn't gonna reduce me to that kind of worst moment. They are gonna see me as a person and they are gonna you know, try to talk to me about whatever happened. And then we're going to figure out how to move forward, right? And that's, I think as a teacher, that's when we lead be, as being a human, right? So we're not just leading and saying, here I am as a teacher, here are my objectives, and here's how we're going to get through them. But no, 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 I'm a person who's working with a lot of other people. And how do I make sure that we, even when things go awry, right, how do I make sure that we all feel held, and I'll just say it's, you know, it can be so challenging in medical education to really um, build this relational piece. 
if you're fortunate to be embedded within a curriculum that is more longitudinal, um, I I have the privilege of teaching clinical reasoning at our one of our longitudinal integrated clerkships um, at Harvard Medical School, and so I have that a whole year of relational sort of um, opportunities with students to really get to know them as learners and to figure out sort of who they are as people and as future doctors and as as learners, um, and that can help so much. I know a lot of us often teach in sort of block clerkships. We might be doing a one-off teaching session. That can feel so much more challenging uh, to uh, to build that relational piece. And I found in those instances, sometimes just talking with the course director um, ahead of time about, so where are these students in their curriculum, right? How is my session embedded in what's happening for them, you know, uh, in their sort of general trajectory as students. And then also if something goes totally crazy at your one-off teaching session, feeding that back to the course director or to their advisor so that there's somebody who has that longitudinal thread um, and can really do some of the great work that, that Sarah is talking about. Um, so we, although we don't, when you have the opportunity to have more relational opportunities and longitudinal opportunities with students, it can be really rewarding for us as teachers. It's important to think about how we can encourage that um, longitudinal relational um, development, uh, even if we're not the the direct contact for that for that student. I love how you've both highlighted, you know, the importance of this relational component. And I was, you know, reflecting on Molly's case because I feel like we've all experienced that clinical scenario. How do you handle a scenario where perhaps a learner does not want? A, like a learner teacher relationship with you? Like, how do you handle that relational, you know, scenario? And do you have any pearls as kind of like more expert clinicians in dealing with that? Sarah, you looked like you that immediately. <laughs> you had some people that came to mind. <laughs> Whew, yes, I did. Um, yeah, no, I mean, and and that's so hard when you're grappling with a learner who doesn't want a relationship. That's when, you know, as a K-12 teacher, I might have a few more tools at my disposal because I can like call a parent and say, hey, any insight? And I'm sure if you guys did that, that would just be wild. So, you know, I think that a lot of times it's really trying to stay the course and just keep trying and look for other avenues, right? So in my experience of working with students, you have to think broadly about all of the areas where you're going to see that person. And maybe it's in the cafeteria and you have an opportunity there, right, um, to check in about whatever, but also just to check in about like, oh, what kind of salad did you get, right? It's that kind of genuine personal interest that doesn't have to be related to the content that helps to build some of those bridges. And again, like this is where it can take time and it takes a whole lot of effort, um, but it's always really high yield when it happens. And when when you have a breakthrough with a learner who was resistant to it, like that's that's game changing. I think both for the teacher and for the student because it's that little wedge allowing in for something that someone might not have wanted or might not have predicted or felt tangential, but actually it was really important. So I think there's a lot around just kind of keep plotting away um, and in in different and unexpected ways. I think also the the culture of medicine, although I think we're moving away from this, it tends to err on the more formal side. And for adult learners, you'll you'll 
go so much further by just being human and real with them and not trying to put on airs. So trying to be relatable, trying to just be honest or just acknowledge if there are, you know, sort of stumbling blocks along the way, I think it's really important. And um, we'll, we'll go pretty far in in developing a relationship with somebody. So uh, just a plug for, although we don't want, you know, necessarily need to be super casual, I think um, just figuring out ways to be real and, and relatable with our, with our students is just can't be emphasized enough. And I, I think we are definitely not going to call their parents, but like you mentioned earlier, Rachel, we, we can reach out to the broader educational community. And I've, I've certainly had success reaching out to like the program director or the RAD advisor and just kind of the people that know them in multiple different settings. And, and that's really been helpful sometimes when learners are struggling to get a, a bigger perspective. One thing I want to highlight that what Rachel, you just said, made me think of, and I'm not, definitely not saying like we need to be besties with our learners or kind of everyone in our learning environment. But the point that you just made about kind of being human and showing human uh, our humanity reminded me of an episode on the Human Doctor podcast where Kimberly Manning actually, the title of the, of the podcast is something like, some folks just don't like pizza. And the the story that she shared was that uh, the feedback conversation she had had with somebody was they just didn't like her. They just didn't like not the working with her or the work that she did, but they just didn't get along. There wasn't that relational component. And, you know, this hits hard to my heart where I'm like, but wait, we can't be friends with everyone. And I think sometimes you have to remember, like, no, you sometimes there is a working and a learning relationship and they're people may not just may not get along in ways that I think we may expect as kind of relational people or social human beings, but just kind of making sure to keep that kind of humanity lens as well of like, you don't have to be best friends with everyone. And actually the work that we're doing and the, um, the training and the educational environment is really to educate and promote, you know, incredible health professionals or, you know, insert kind of uh, educational environment here. And I think that really, your point really highlighted that for me, at least. Yeah, we we learned that lesson so well in clinical medicine, right, that we're not going to be like friends with all our patients, right? We, at the end of the day, and this actually harkens back to what Sarah said at the very beginning, our job is not to make all of our patients happy, right? Our job is to take good care of them and uh, to be as evidence-based as possible and to have it aligned with their values and um, and their goals. But we may not be their favorite person and that's okay. And I think we accept that as, as doctors and as clinicians. And I think we should think about how to apply that as, you know, as teachers. This has been great. I, I, you mentioned, Sarah, a little bit about feedback and I'm just curious, do you try to like if if you feel like you have enough of a relationship and there's time, do you try to pull the learner aside after a challenging session and just say like, hey, what what's up? What, how did that go for you? Like, wh- why was this challenging? Or do you more just kind of hope that it goes better next time and reach out to your critical friends group and <laughs> hope the learner just forgets what happened? How do you I kind mean, of I navigate think- that in a best case scenario? Yeah, I mean, I think we would all probably hope that that would never happen again. Um, and and I think that's always right the right move to say like, hey, what's going on? I also think that's a good relationship building move, honestly, because in so many moments, right, we might not have a great point to turn to, or it you know it might be 
tricky and feel artificial to like try to strike something up with someone. But when there is actually work, there's actually tension, um, that's a great starting point for a relationship. So I think it would always be kind of a best practice to pull that student aside and you know, this is where it gets hard because there's a power dynamic. Um, but to try to, as genuinely as you can, just have a conversation about what happened, to ask that learner to potentially give you some feedback, and then to also share your experience, right? Because it's not just, these are moments that are challenging for everyone. And when we just kind of ignore them, we're losing so many opportunities. And we're also just losing that opportunity for for connection and for relationship. So I think you always have the conversation, even if it feels sticky and awful, even if you're not sure how to start it. I've started many conversations with students like, hey, I'm not exactly sure how this is going to go, but we're going to try something right now. Um, And I think that's just kind of the humility that sometimes it takes to be able to say something happened. And I think we owe it to not only one another, but also to our entire classroom of peers to try to figure that out. Yeah, I really love that, Sarah. I think in those challenging scenarios, it sounds to me that you're really seeing the learners for who they are and kind of naming the emotions, naming what's happened. And you're also role modeling, it sounds like, you know, like an approach to try to do feedback with them in real time, too. Yeah. And I think it is, again, teachers do a lot of things, right? And you guys add on that you are medical educators, right? You are doing so much and trying to hold so much. But but I think that it's just all so important to try to get done. And we're never going to do anything perfectly, um, but kind of making our, making our best attempt at trying to do any of this is going to be good enough. That's amazing. Well, anything else that you think we should cover before we get to take-home points? So, well, Rachel, we'll start with you. And what main take-home points do you have for our audience? We certainly hope that we've explained that whenever something's happening in the classroom that's unexpected, we really should just take a pause and make sure we sort of we should take a pause and uh, avoid any major assumptions and consider a sort of broad differential about what might be happening with our learners. Yeah. And- I'll say for myself, I think just keeping in mind that you have strategies and that other people can help build up more strategies in your toolbox, right? So talk about things because when we feel like we are the only person who something has ever happened to, we're kidding ourselves, right? Like we all have these hard moments. And so the more we can talk about them, the more we can open up our practice and share things with one another, the better our teaching is going to become, which is just going to help the next group of doctors, the next group of learners, right, to really become their best. And I think I would just add it as well that we, there's so much that we can learn outside of the medical education bubble and that talking to other teachers who have expertise in teaching can be so helpful. So I've learned a ton from Sarah about various strategies that are used as sort of the gold standard in the K through 12 sphere that we can readily sort of translate and apply in medical education. I think we all have today, so we, maybe we'll have to have you back, Sarah. <laughs> I agree, oh, I would happily. I agree. <laughs> you can join our critical friends group, Sarah. Oh my gosh, oh, can this be a new critical educators. friends group? Oh, Please. absolutely. That'd I'll be, be there great. anytime. 
<laughs> we can listen to Ariana Grande as we debrief. Uh, and I'll dance. It'll be great. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The enthusiastic dancing comes back. Yes, for sure. Speaking of kind of resources, dance songs, anything else, um, do y'all have any particular things you want to plug for the listeners, resources, websites, any any material? Yeah, we, we put together a handout um, from our workshop that includes all of our strategies, most of which we talked about today, um, that you're welcome to f- sort of fold in as part of your teaching toolbox. We also um, have resources on Critical Friends Group if you're curious to learn more. And we'll just also plug that attending conferences like SGIM um, can be super helpful in your own sort of ongoing learning and growth as uh, as a teacher and to find a community of medical educators uh, as potentially your new critical friends group. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us yes. on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, this was such a great conversation. I I just loved their insights, and it was it was so great to have both Rachel's perspective as a medical educator, and then Sarah's perspective coming from an educational background outside of medicine. And I, I think that was just a really great kind of two sides of a, a perspective. And I learned a lot. Um, one thing I really took away was having those concrete um, circuit breakers that they discussed. So really specific things you can do when a session is starting to get derailed, just to kind of ease emotions, give yourself a little break. So things like trying a pair share, having the class physically like get up and move around or take a five minute break, um, having the learners take a couple minutes to do a self-writing exercise. I think just having those in your back pocket, I could see being really valuable if a, a situation got a little tense or overwhelming. What about you, Era? What are your take home points? Molly, I agree. I love the circuit breakers. I also felt like there was a mindfulness theme and what uh, Rachel and Sarah were saying about kind of how to be aware of what might come up. So that kind of pre-situational awareness and then in the moment, just being very mindful of like, am I seeing what I'm seeing? Kind of what is the observation of the behavior? And then Sarah brought this really cool term, which I think maybe I just haven't named in my mind, but this culture of distraction, like what are learners doing? What behaviors am I seeing? And kind of how does that maybe align? with the pyramid um, that they shared. So lots of incredible pearls. Francis, I don't know if you have any take-home points for yourself. Yeah, I think what I really loved about our discussion, so many things, but two things that really stuck with me was really the relational element and how important it is to build these not just like short-term, let's say your clinical working together on the wards, but long-term longitudinal relationships. And then also that term of critical friends group, it's like not just like you know, that we're just teaching with our learners, but also for our own professional development and how we can foster kind of more of a medical education community. Well, and listeners, if you want to share your tea complaints on social media, we would love to hear them. So this has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Paul Williams for their support in this project and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music. Thanks to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio and also our social media team, Andrew DeLatte on Instagram and John Ong on Twitter. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoiblein. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I've been Dr. Francis Yu. 
and we're committed to providing you with high value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. I'm Dr. Ira Krasinovskaya. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment.